This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to another episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Burkett, CSW. I'm Tiffany Poth, a wine hippie. And you also have a psalm, too. Before I, we should mention that too. So we had a psalm and a CSW. It sounds like the start of a bad joke. The psalm and a CSW walk into a wine bar and hate everything <laughs> because it's twenty different Chardonnays and twenty different Cab Sauvs. Agreed. <laughs> Today's focus is the great state of Kansas. Kansas is a state we actually both have experience on the ground with. Uh, the wine in question that we're going to be talking about today is the Blue Jacket Crossing Panape, uh, which is uh, when I was in Kansas about three years ago, with Blue Jacket was the first winery I visited that day. And I remember trying this rosé and being, oh, this is a really great rosé, but there might be others that I like better today, so I'm going to hold off and save money. And, you know, if I if it is the Shining Star, I'll pick it up at the end of the day. And then they were closed when I came back. Um, and this is a wine that had been kind of in the back of my mind since that day. It's just like, yeah, wow. That was like the best wine of the trip and I didn't buy a bottle. I'm a moron. And then Tiffany went to Kansas and I'm like, if you find a bottle of this, can you grab it for me? And she did. So that's why we're drinking it here today. And it's delicious. Kansas actually does have a pretty long history. Uh, the Kansas industry kind of started as an extension of the industry in neighboring Missouri, which we have not covered yet in this podcast. In the state of Kansas right now, there are 250 acres of vines altogether and 23 wineries. In the early mid to 19th century, 19th century, uh, a lot of German immigrants were coming to this area. And they were bringing vines uh, into Missouri and the Missouri River. And this culture of grapes and grape growing spread into eastern Kansas. And actually, by the 1870s, Missouri and Kansas constituted one of the largest growing winemaking regions in the entire USA at that point. And there were wineries in Kansas as far west as Russell, which is, I guess, on the border, and then Paola. But the industry died fairly early on compared to anyone else because uh, the state was home to Kerry Nation, who was basically the founder of the temperance movement, from what I understand. And so Kansas became the first state in the U.S. to pass a statewide prohibition act in 1881. Didn't really have a massive effect on the industry in Kansas until national prohibition took over because as late as 1900, there were still thousands of acres still existing. Uh, and there was this book published by the State Horticultural Society called The Grape in Kansas, which talked all these. Although apparently all of the grapes were used for bootleg winemaking or sold across the state to Missouri. But national prohibition is what killed it all, and Tiffany's going to lead us into talking about that. So yeah, prohibition um, um, started in 1920, and that meant that the sale, production, and transport of alcohol was outlawed. And it was outlawed until 1933. There was a small loophole, though, that gave families the ability to make 200 gallons of wine per year for personal use. But that wasn't going to be enough to keep any wineries open. So it really decimated uh, the wine industry. And uh, finally, when it was uh, rescinded in 1933, it really took the U.S. winemakers and grape growers decades to bounce back from the effects of prohibition. Yeah, and even after prohibition was lifted nationally, uh, basically the whole idea, from what I understand, was the government said, okay, the fucking states can do whatever the hell they want. Mm -hmm. 
but this is fucking nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, some wineries did uh, survive by making wine for the church. And so they made sacramental wines, but... You hear that, guys? You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Winemaking in Kansas only returned in... The wine industry in Kansas only reemerged as a result of the Kansas Farm Winery Statute in 1985. So even a couple of years after Arizona was rebooted. Um, and Arizona prohibition was so bad that... Uh, until 1984, you were technically not allowed to even have wine as communion. Oh, wow. Um, whether anyone actually followed this, I don't know. What about separation of church and state? You can't see this, but I'm shrugging magnificently right now. <laughs> um, all I can say is that Arizona being a red state, they don't believe in that a lot. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> we just got political. Well, no, it's a it's a matter of fact. Arizona is a red state. Right. And there's a lot of discussion on that in Republican circles, whether there should be separation of church and state. We're not going to state opinion one way or the other because we're just fucking happy that they canceled prohibition. Thank yes. God. Because sometimes you need a drink. <laughs> so the Panapa is made from 100% St. Vincent. Oh, you're going to make me read this? I am. Even though I'm going to slur like every other fucking word? <laughs> like I usually do? Anyway. Um, so, St. Vincent, according to the Big Red Wine Book, is a recent cherry-flavored... Oh, cherry! cherry. Duh! So we were fucking sitting with this Nays de Vin figuring, trying to figure out what the hell is the scent? And pouring through every single scent in this thing, and cherry is not one of the scents. We pulled raspberry. I mean, it definitely has raspberry and yeah. strawberry, but... But cherry. Cherry, okay. and I'm getting a lot of cherry on the palate, too. Yes. Like, holy cherry, mm -hmm. Batman. Like, cherry Jolly Rancher. Yes. Um, is the main flavor profile. But anyway. <clears throat> Recent cherry-flavored American variety. Only possibly a hybrid from Missouri. According to the Big Red Wine Book, the variety was discovered in 1973 by Scott Todesbush was then the manager of Mount Pleasant Vineyards, owned by Lucian Dressel in Augusta, Missouri. What scent is this? Okay. I also oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> Duh! I also picked out almonds. We are stupid. No, we're not stupid. No. Just tired. It was the giant breakfast we had. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, you're right. There is almond in the, mm -hmm. and, uh, as a secondary note. Anyway. So cutting through the scent of Philip Wagner, uh, who propagated and sold them in Maryland, it was first called Stromboli for some reason. And then, uh, given though it, it's kind of similarity to Pinot Noir, which I kind of see, and I've had full-on red St. Lawrence from Missouri that kind of remind me like uh, Burgundian Pinot. So it was named after the patron saint of the Côte d'Or in Burgundy. Uh, the exact pedigree of this grape is still unknown. It is thought by some to be a chance seedling that was a hybrid of Pinot Noir and Chamberson that was growing together in that vineyard. And since Chamberson has a considerable amount of Vitis riparia in its ancestry, the pigments and wine made from this grape uh, should contain this molecule called diglucosides, which is a sugar uh, for Vitis riparia, Vitis robustus, and Vitis obrusca. But it's absent in Vitis vinifera. However, no traces of the sugar have been found in this grape which suggests that it's actually 100% vinifera varietal. But no DNA analysis has been done as of the writing of the Big Red Wine Book. 
to determine the parentage. So it'll be interesting when, when and if that's done. And we were talking about this over breakfast this morning. It's like, why aren't more people doing it? Well, money, if you have, you know, 10,000 extra dollars laying around, uh, are you going to figure out genetic varietals of your grapes or are you going to get more bottles because you need more models? Well, more bottles. Exactly. We have the capabilities to figure out what grapes they are, but people don't want to spend the money. Yeah, which is okay. I understand. You got to, you got to make money. And while this, the, the advancement of knowledge is a true and just thing, it doesn't pay the bills. And I think it will get cheaper, and so that knowledge will be more prevalent in the future, near future. So according to the Big Red Wine Book, the viticultural characteristics of this grape, loose clusters of medium-sized to large berries, moderately vigorous, moderately susceptible to black rot, botrytis bunch rot, and downy and powdery mildews, it's late ripening and moderately hardy down to minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 23 Celsius for the non-freedom unit listeners to 15 degrees Fahrenheit, according to uh, Smiling 2008. According to, also to the Big Red Wine Book, wines are bright red with quite complex flavors of cherry, sometimes nutty and a little smoky, and generally high acidity. Producers of varietal wines include Three Sisters, Two Saints, and Whispering Oaks in Missouri, and Domaine Berrien in Michigan. Uh, and then it's also found in Iowa, where... Uh, Rick Sklosgen of Del Rio Springs actually should grow this in Iowa. And he was talking about maybe planting this in Chino Valley, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also found in Iowa and Pennsylvania and Kansas, which is not even mentioned in this book. Um, and as far as I know, this is a state from mm-hmm. their vineyard. Mm-hmm. So it's not fruit brought in from across the border, right. which a lot of states in a lot of wineries in Kansas, from what I've been told, are doing that, mm-hmm. um, which is something that. Uh, I found out when I was visiting there. I don't know if people talked to you about that or not. They did. They were very vocal about it. Uh, The ones that were actually growing their own grapes were very upset with the wineries not growing their own grapes and passing it off as Kansas wine. This is actually um, in the news lately for those, and I think I shared this on the uh, Facebook page for uh, Make America Grape Again. Uh, There's a lawsuit going on in... Minnesota on that subject. Okay. Farm wineries versus wineries that are growing their own grapes and, and versus those that are trucking them in from Michigan or, or California or New York. No, yeah, I was very disappointed. I went to a winery in uh, Kansas City. It was actually on the Missouri side of Kansas City, and they had a tasting. I tasted a Barbera that was absolutely divine. And I remember you posting about that. It was from Lodi that, you know... Passing it off as... Passing it off as, you know, a a Missouri wine, a Kansas City wine. Now, it's fine if you're going to bring in your grapes from outside. Mm -hmm. A lot of wineries do that in a lot of different states. It's perfectly fine. I'm okay with that. But I want you to be honest on your Mm -hmm. labeling. Mm -hmm. And this is for any winery owner listening that wants to bring in grapes. You know, I'm fine with you doing that. But just tell people and say on the bottle... You know, this is from this vineyard in Lodi or this vineyard in New York. Mm-hmm. Don't try to pass off your Zinfandel when it's from Lodi grapes as a Florida wine or, or some shit. I don't know. I'm just throwing states under the bus there. Um, but anyway, this wine is fucking beautiful. It's just this bright sort of strawberry, raspberry pink color. Super vibrant. Nice acidity, nice acidity, just the tiniest hint of residual sugar, like probably 1%, if that. If that. And it really balances out the acidity. It's, you know, in a few episodes, Gary and I have harped on residual sugar being like, ah, we hate it, but 
in its right place like this, it's great. Um, this is definitely a fucking porch pounder. Yeah, I would sit on the porch with this and pound this all day, which is what I did with my bottle. New hashtag on Instagram. Oh, I, I've used it before. Oh, wow. Okay. I think eons ago, before I visited the wineries in Kansas, I had a friend in Kansas uh, who would occasionally we would do bottle trades, and she sent me a bottle of this, and I remember pounding this on the deck and going, oh, that was really good. I'll have to get a bottle when I go back, and then I don't know why I didn't because I, it was the first winery I visited that day, like I said, and... Oh, maybe I'll find other rosés that she didn't send me, and da 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 and then, as a moron. So, what are we getting on the nose and palate after this car passes? Well, I definitely think that. Well, I definitely think that the primary aromas are cherry, raspberry, wild strawberry, maybe a little lychee. Yeah, and it's also got that sort of wild. Um, it's also got this. Sort of sea salt salinity character that I've gotten in a lot of wines from this area of the Midwest, um, which seems to be a specific terroir character to that region, which is great. I love wines that speak to that sense of place. And as I think I mentioned in the California ex episode, uh, that's one of the things I don't like about a lot of California wines is they want to hide that terroir because mm -hmm. terroir isn't a new world thing; it's an old world thing. But I like wines with a sense of place because they tell about the geology and the salinity and that sort of thing. And looking at geologic maps that trip, because this was back when I was dating a geologist when I went to Kansas, all of these vineyards are on Carboniferous and early Permian ocean rock. Mm -hmm. So they're getting that sea salt from the ancient earth. So it's speaking of the landscape when that part of Kansas was under an inland sea. Right. Uh, which I think is really cool. I do too. I think it's, you know, it's part of the story of the wine and it shouldn't be covered up. Exactly. Uh, oak should be used as a balancing agent, not as a, a masking agent. Absolutely. Because it's lies! On the, the secondary character, I think we're giving some muscat, rose, lychee, and um, mint. Mm -hmm. A little bit of mint, for sure. Yeah, overall, the Blue Jacket Crossing Panape is a stellar rosé. I think that this is... Now, it is as good as I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, it's different from the one I remember, but then again, every vintage is different. Absolutely. And it's still a beautiful, great wine. Other wineries that I really enjoyed in Kansas, the other one that I really, really enjoyed was Whitetail Run. So if you're in that area near Oletha, Kansas, go and visit. Uh, we both thought that Holyfield was a really fun and interesting experience. The staff there at Holyfield are really knowledgeable. Super knowledgeable. And I ironically enough, so they're, they're familiar with the industry in Arizona because when I went and visited and said I was from Arizona, they didn't ask about Maynard. They asked, how are Todd and Kelly Bostock doing? And I'm just like, you know the Bostocks. This is going to be a fun and interesting experience for tasting. We need to talk more. <laughs> uh, but on that note, tune in next episode where we won't be in Kansas anymore. But in the meantime, make America grape again. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. You can reach us at makeamericagrapepodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at, at theazwinemonk, or on Twitter at cvburkett. Be sure to also check out our website, makeamericagrapeagainpodcast.com. My name is Tiffany Alonzo Pod. Please follow me on Instagram at wine underscore hippie or my website, winehippie.com. Or you can email me at winehippie1969 at gmail.com.